Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, Incorporating Scientific Advances in Myelofibrosis Treatment Plans, a Quality Improvement Initiative, is brought to you by Access Medical Education and is supported by educational grants from GlaxoSmithKline, Insight Corporation, CTI Biopharma Corporation, and Bristol-Myers Squibb Company. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Here's your host, Dr. Ruben Messa. Hello, my name is Ruben Messa, and I'm the Executive Director of the Atrium Health Wake Forest Baptist Comprehensive Cancer Center, as well as President of Atrium Health Levine Cancer. I'm excited today to share with you this presentation regarding incorporating scientific advances into myelofibrosis treatment plans. These are just my background and titles, disclaimers, and any disclosure of unlabeled use. Here are my conflicts of interest as it relates to the trials I've been involved with or the consulting that I have participated in. As learning objectives upon completing this activity, our hope is that you'll have a better sense of myelofibrosis, what is the disease burden, and the impact on patients' quality of life. That you'll be able to apply guideline-recommended and evidence-based prognostic and risk stratification approaches in your practice. That you'll be able to evaluate clinical safety, efficacy, tolerability, and durability data for approved and emerging therapeutic agents and combinations, including data pertaining to improving quality of life and reducing symptom burden. Develop personalized care and treatment plans that incorporate disease-specific as well as patient-specific factors. So let's begin delving into the difficulties these patients can face, both in terms of individual symptoms and quality of life. So we're going to focus on treatment planning, symptom burden, what are the tools to be able to measure symptoms, what is that spectrum throughout the disease continuum, how do you track symptoms as part of treatment planning, what are the impact of symptoms on quality of life. So as we think about treating these patients, one why all this rigmarole regarding symptoms, quality of life, disease burden? Myelofibrosis is a chronic myeloid neoplasm, but it has a latent course. And because of that latent course, we need to be mindful that there's a whole range of factors we have to take in how to treat patients. Indeed, as we try to think about our treatment goals, at the current time, we do not have curative therapy short of stem cell transplantation. And because of that, as we think about medical therapies, we have to think about their benefits and their risks. What are the symptoms a patient faces? What is their molecular phenotype that may impact their prognosis? What is their disease burden and disease phenotype? And then we think about our options, which can include JEK inhibitors, three of which are approved, and one that is on the cusp of approval, as well as what does success, failure, and monitoring look like. Now, as we evaluate patients with myelofibrosis, I like to think about it as a portfolio of difficulties that they may face. And not all patients will face each of these. There clearly can be risk of vascular events. Now, these are more common in PVERA and ET, but it's important to note that they certainly occur at a higher frequency in patients with MF, certainly than age-matched controls. Elevated blood counts can matter, those with significant leukocytosis or thrombocytosis, and sometimes vascular events have occurred and can be unrecognized. Patients may also carry forward the risk of vascular events from their earlier disease, if they had Bud-Chiari syndrome, pulmonary emboli, etc. 
They clearly can have cytopenias. These can be more present as the disease progresses. Cytopenias are a much more characteristic feature of myelofibrosis over PV and ET. They clearly can have anemias predominant over thrombocytopenia, which can be present in about a third of patients. About a quarter can be transfusion dependent. They can have splenomegaly. We think the spleen enlarges for a range of reasons, including the sequestration of circulating myeloid progenitor cells. We do not think that the spleen has effective extramedullary hematopoiesis. So there are cells being made there, but they're really not leaving the spleen. The big spleen can cause symptoms. It can cause pain. It can cause early satiety. It clearly can also cause a hypersplenism and consumption of cells. They clearly can have symptoms, and they are the worst in myelofibrosis. Their origin can be multifactorial, and they are part of our goal of therapy. They clearly can progress to acute leukemia or have other progression. Indeed, for many patients with MPNs, it is progression that can make their disease life-threatening. Is that PV or ET to myelofibrosis? Is that PV or ET to AML? More often, it's MF to AML. It is rare these days that PV or ET goes straight to AML. And all of this, of course, is occurring in the setting of an individual that has a baseline level of health with age, medicines, comorbidities that define that individual. Now, these individuals I mentioned can have frequent symptoms. You'll see here on the left, the prevalence of symptoms with MS in the green. This is in 2,000 patients. You see those patients having the most significant. And then you see the severity of symptoms on the right. What you'll see in this graph is that fever is the least common. I'll note that there are several symptoms that really are more associated with the disease progression. Fever, weight loss, bone pain in particular. But there's others that are almost universal, such as fatigue. Those are not uncommon for the patient that I see that's progressed from PV or ET into MF where it's clear that they have more fever or bone pain or particular weight loss. Weight loss is something in our society that just does not occur without people trying. Sometimes even if they try, they aren't able to lose weight. I know I certainly fall in that category. So if they lose weight without trying, it can be a sign of depression or illness in an MF, most surely illness. Now the 10 item score has now been validated in multiple languages. It's easy to assess serial values, easy for patients to fill out. It's been validated in multiple different ways and through the conduct in many different trials. There are, perhaps this is too many details for some of you, but I'll share that although we have revised our scores over time, they are interchangeable and again have these core items. Looking at MF specifically, here you see the decreasing prevalence of these individual symptoms with fatigue, being almost universal. This approach has been used in the majority of our clinical trials who were JAK inhibitors and other agents in MPN. Now, symptoms can impact quality of life. Quality of life and symptoms are not the same construct. So quality of life is a broader issue. It is really the perception of where you stand compared to where you think you should be standing. And things can impact your quality of life. Let's use the classic example. Someone you love dearly has died. Your quality of life has decreased dramatically. That has not impacted your health. 
but it impacts your quality of life. When we speak of things like symptoms, we're really speaking of health-related quality of life. And health-related quality of life can have other configurations. Financial toxicity from buying medicines. The hassle of medical care. I need to go in to get blood counts once a week. That's a hassle. I need to get transfusions once a week. That's a much more significant hassle. In this analysis done with colleagues using statistical correlative approaches, they're able to show that the two biggest things that impact quality of life in MPN patients are either their symptoms or depression. Indeed, as we've looked at multiple different types of analysis, it's important to note that depression is frequently underdiagnosed, clearly can be impactful for these patients, and needs to be on our radar. So take-home points, MPN symptom burden. First, MPNs can cause a range of disease burden. Their symptoms are common and they can be severe. The symptoms, as we'll get to the prognostic scores, can affect prognosis. They clearly can affect treatment plans, the dose of a drug, whether to start a drug, whether to stop a drug. Tracking MPN symptoms is recommended in our current NCCN guidelines. And MPN symptoms can be linked directly to MPN biology. So these symptoms are not just out of the blue. They can be related to elevation in cytokines, elevation in blood counts, decreases in circulation or vascular biology. So multiple different contributors, and indeed, I like to say, are a type of biomarker of the disease that need to be tracked and assessed. Next, molecular markers and prognosis. Here we're going to talk about the role of the JAKSAT pathway in model fibrosis, the evolution of prognostic models in model fibrosis, clinical prognostic models, and how we utilize it, whether the mutation enhanced prognostic scoring systems, how we risk stratify and also scoring systems for secondary myelofibrosis and stem cell transplant. Now, I've spent almost 30 years of my career caring for patients with MPNs, 15 years before the check inhibitors, 15 plus years after. And with that, we have identified that there are three core driver mutations, the JAK2V617F, caroticulin, and MPL. And with these driver mutations, it's important to note, as you see on the right side of this slide, that all three of these mutations are impacting the JAK-STAT pathway. All three of them lead to overactivation of the pathway, leading to a dysregulation of gene transcription and proliferation. Therefore, when we speak of JAK inhibitors in later part of the presentation, note that that is inhibiting the JAK-STAT pathway overall. And because of that, in inhibiting JAK2, it inhibits the impact of all three of these mutations. Additionally, there are those individuals that are, quote, triple negative. They lack any one of these three mutations. For these individuals, we feel that they likely have other mutations that are still leading to overactivation of this JAK-STAT pathway. Now, there are many prognostic models that have been developed for myelofibrosis. Part of the origin of this has been given that there is a very heterogeneous prognosis for these patients. There's a great desire to try to better understand the prognosis so that these individuals may be better served, but also that we may be better able to identify those individuals that might benefit from a stem cell transplant. The most utilized internationally are the IPSS and DIPSS. These utilize a variety of clinical parameters and large data sets. 
that were able to stratify patients by prognosis. The DIPSS added in additional factors, and the DIPSS Plus added in carrier type transfusion dependence, thrombocytopenia. Now, for the trainees in my center, I tell them, you know, boy, it's not critical that you memorize these scores. It's helpful to know, one, they exist, two, to have some sense of when to apply them, and three, there are clues in terms of the biology of the disease. When you look at the negative prognostic factors, they tell you, well, why is the prognosis worse? For these individuals, one, are they moving more toward acute leukemia? So what happens in acute leukemia? You have more cytopenias, you have more blasts. You have more unfavorable karyotype, so all of that's fairly logical. Two, constitutional symptoms. That's important. Again, the biological surrogate of the disease. And the cytopenias, the worse they are, the worse the outcome. Again, all of that is fairly logical. Now, the second generation of prognostic scores, I think were enhanced when we added in additional molecular phenotype data. The absence of CalR type 1, okay, so that's a bit of an awkward way of saying anything other than CalR type 1, which has a good prognosis, or a high molecular risk mutation. What's included in there? ASXO1, EZH2, SRSF2, IDH1 and 2. If you've got more than one of those, that again is more prognostically averse. And with this, you can really stratify patients quite a bit. It particularly is helpful, I think, in helping to identify low-risk patients. There's less of a spread between intermediate and high-risk, but helping to separate the low-risk patients is probably most helpful, really, in this whole discussion regarding stem cell transplant. Again, more scores than you can imagine, but each of them a bit more refined. Here in the version 2, they added in karyotype that, again, still has some additional prognostic relevance, they're helping to further stratify the risk. I think if we're considering stem cell transplant, the more information, the better. And that's where I think these things really excel. These scores have not been particularly helpful in really helping us guide medical therapy, but are helpful regarding transplant. Now, our colleagues at NCCN, and I was the inaugural panel chair for this group, said, okay, we've got lots of prognostic scores. But in terms of clinical relevance, it's probably sufficient to look at lower risk versus higher risk, regardless of your score, put them in each bucket, with lower risk patients, again, being managed in one way, maybe observation, maybe single agent jack inhibitor, higher risk, greater likelihood of transplantation. Now, the MySEC PM, this is for individuals with myelofibrosis that had evolved from ET or PV. Why the need for this score? is that in patients with PV and ET, many of them will have higher platelets or hemoglobin than primary MF patients. You can think that they retain some of the overproliferation from earlier disease. Here, again, you can prognosticate them according. Now, the NTSS was a prognostic score specifically for those individuals undergoing transplant. I've told you now more than once that the main value in these scores is for those that are considering transplant. So what you really care about is how well are they going to do with a transplant? This includes some of those other features, the other ones that were relevant. But what they found in patients who actually underwent transplant is that the HLA mismatch donor, that's a factor. 
The ASXL1 mutation in particular is prognostically averse. The Karnowski performance status, anything other than a great Karnowski. So all of these things can really be helpful. And I think in many ways, this is critical to be calculated in addition to the other factors. When the colleague looking at considering a stem cell transplant is considering that option for patients. So take home points from MF molecular markers and prognosis. One, driver mutations in the vast majority of patients with MF, but they're all acting on the JAK-STAT pathway. Two, additional somatic mutations really can be prognostically very helpful. I am recommending for individuals, in the majority of cases, they have NGS testing for their myelofibrosis in particular at diagnosis and potentially repeated at some frequency if they are a stem cell transplant. Many prognostic models incorporate these clinical and molecular features, and I would say the IPSS or DIPSS at the current time really is inadequate for prognosticating many of these individuals. So let's pivot now to treatment. You saw from these prior scores, these patients sometimes can have a very latent disease in terms of prognosis, but can have significant symptoms. So how do we manage them? Well, as we're trying to treat a patient, and again, saw a patient just this morning, newly diagnosed model fibrosis. What are our goals? What are our treatment guidelines? If we're going to use a JAK inhibitor, what are our expectations? A JAK inhibitor is approved in the frontline setting. Potential use of JAK inhibitors in the second line setting. Indeed, as we're thinking of the goals of management, what are our goals? Well, we're trying to decrease disease progression. We're trying to improve symptoms. We're trying to decrease any downsides of being on a medicine. Iatrogenic side effects, secondary cancers. We clearly don't want thrombosis. We clearly want to avoid disease progression. And we need to be mindful of many things that are really relevant to the patient. Emotional, financial, family impact, productivity. Meaning, again, if you're on a medicine, you're feeling better, you're able to, to work, there's an economic impact to that in a favorable way. Just the same, there's a very adverse prognostic or economic impact if you are unable to work. Now, as we manage patients with myelofibrosis in 2023, we start with an accurate diagnosis. We assess survival and disease burden. Survival is not the only thing that we treat. Again, there's both the length of life and quality of life. Both are relevant. If you have a long life, but you feel terrible, you probably still merit treatment. Develop a treatment plan. Communicate that plan to the patient. Do they know why they're on the therapy? What is goals of therapy? What is success look like? We decide, should we be going to a stem cell transplant in the near future, in the long-term future? We discuss frontline medical therapy. Again, what is appropriate in that setting? If they do not benefit, do we move to a salvage transplant, second-line therapy, or do we move to accelerated or blast phase management? Now, guidelines, I like to say, are the guardrails of medicine. How you apply those guidelines, that is the art of medicine. So I'll use an example. If the guideline says that a frontline therapy for myelofibrosis could include rutzelidinib or fedradinib or stem cell transplant or a clinical trial, those are the options. Meaning if I wanted to give a patient adriamycin, it's not in the guidelines. There's no evidence to say that it would be helpful. Again, you'd really be out on your own and without evidence. That clearly is outside of the guardrails of medicine. 
but which you use. Now that is the art based on the evidence, based on the patient's exact situation, based on your experience in clinical acumen. Now the NCCN guidelines for lower risk consider clinical trial, observation, or in certain circumstances, ruxolidinib, pegylated interferon alpha-2A, or hydroxyurea. Really, this main group tends to be either observation or ruxolidinib, particularly if symptomatic. Pegylated interferon, probably helpful with early disease, moving more toward MF, trying to avoid progression. Hydroxyurea really is not a mainstay MF therapy. Why this is in here, there are some individuals, again, they have residual thrombocytosis, leukocytosis from earlier disease. They may benefit. The vast majority of patients fall into this other book, IRO risk. If they're a transplant candidate, take them to transplant, although they likely would benefit from a JAK inhibitor on the way to a transplant. And someone's going to a transplant, they rarely go immediately. If they're thrombocytopenic, that clearly fits with the FDA approval for percretinib. If their platelets are greater than 50, again, consider ruxolidinib as a frontline option. Vedratinib is approved in this setting. Clinical trial can be always a consideration. Or if they have no response or loss of response, clearly try Fedratinib, that's second line, or Procretinib for individuals with marked thrombocytopenia. Now, for MF-associated anemia, there is their own additional set of guidelines. Rule out other causes of anemia. Treat coexisting causes. Supportive care. If their EPO level is under 500, give them some EPO or consider a clinical trial. If they're over 500, consider Danazol, consider an IMIT. Again, I would put Danazol as a consideration that under 500 if you're not going to give them EPO. Now, the JAK inhibitor landscape in 2023, we have many drugs on the right that have been tested, but that for a range of reasons, whether toxicity or the competitiveness of the market are no longer in development. We have three approved drugs, ruxolidinib, fedratinib, and procretinib. Ruxolidinib approved in frontline and MF and second-line in PV, fedratinib in frontline and MF, procretinib for individuals with low platelets. Mamelodinib is seeking approval and again may well be approved in the very near future. Ruxolidinib, combinations, a variety of them are in phase three clinical trial. Ruxolidinib enjoys this frontline position due to the highly impactful Comfort 1 study. Comfort 1 and Comfort 2 study, now published 11 years ago, ruxolidinib versus placebo with crossover for splenomegaly with primary endpoints of improvement of spleen and symptoms. Here, individuals had significant benefit in here showing their waterfall plots, showed superiority in terms of spleen and symptoms compared to placebo. Over time, we've learned several things. One, dose matter. And if there is an opportunity in patients treated in the U.S., there are too many patients who are treated really with a suboptimal dose. They use an adequate dose, which would be 10 milligrams twice a day or more, ideally 15 twice a day or more. We've learned over time that the development of anemia can be a side effect but is not prognostically detrimental. Baseline anemia is not a contraindication to using ruxolidinib. And you'll see here that reductions in spleen volume, with or without anemia, can benefit. 
Likewise, a total syndrome score can benefit with or without anemia. We have seen over time that patients can live longer, and this has been validated in multiple different ways. The trial admittedly was not designed with survival as an endpoint. However, real-world evidence and follow-up of these patients show that there is a survival benefit. And someone, again, who treated patients for 15 years before JAK inhibitors, there is no question these patients live longer. Now, there is not a plateau. These agents are not a cure, but they live longer. I saw a patient in 2022 that had been on ruxolitinib since 2010, who was still on the medicine. When I went back and calculated that individual's risk, their expected survival was at three years when they went on the agent, and they were alive at 12 years. And only then were having signs of progression, and we put them on a different clinical trial. Here, this graph showing from the phase one study that the degree of splenic reduction correlated with the survival benefit, so that achieving a response matters. And that gets back to our further validation that having adequate dose intensity probably is very important in terms of having a survival benefit. Here's showing what those survival curves look like in a pooled analysis between comfort one and comfort two. Here is an analysis showing the correlation of spleen volume reduction at week 24 and with overall survival. Again, the greater the degree of splenic reduction, greater the benefit. Here, another analysis, but going back to the same issue. Patients live longer. That correlates with the degree of reduction in the spleen, correlates with the quality of the response. So patients are on suboptimal doses of ruxolidinib. You're probably not seeing these kinds of benefits. Now, what does failure look like? There are many individuals that have asked me over this 10 to 15-year period of time, okay, ruxolidinib is helpful. What does failure look like? I often share the opinion that failure depends on what other options an individual has. So before we had other approved therapies, and Fedratin was the second approved therapy in the fall of 2019, we didn't have much else. So patients stayed on, and we knew that if they came off ruxolidinib, their survival was poor. And if they had clonal progression, it was even that much worse. So clonal progression and failing jack inhibition associated with the worst survival. There are certain mutations that have been somewhat predictive to resistance. Primary resistance is not common. It's more common secondary, but in particular, the RAS or Sybil mutations predicting resistance to ruxolitinib. There is a new model, prognostic score, giving a sense of survival for individuals after six months of therapy with ruxolitinib. And those that would, are prognostically averse, using a lower dose, under 20 twice a day, less than a 30% spleen reduction at three or six months, red cell transfusions at three or six months, and red cell transfusions at baseline and at three and six months. With those, you can help differentiate, really, those with a much poor survival versus less. And again, a model that can be helpful as we're contemplating on alternative, moving to a trial, stem cell transplant.
Now, what about Fred Ryan? I mentioned that this was the second agent approved, August of 2019. This, a JAK inhibitor, inhibitory of JAK1 or, or JAK2 or JAK1, JAK3, and 2. It's also a FUT3 inhibitor, approved for individuals with a platelet count greater than 50,000, and approved based on trials both in the frontline and second-line setting. In the frontline setting, in the Jakarta study for individuals, it was seen superior based on comparison to placebo for control of spleen and symptoms. Additionally, individuals could be treated with a plate of between 50 to 100,000 with good evidence of response in spleen and symptoms, suggesting that it could be dosed fully in that group of individuals. I led the analysis for the symptoms, and we saw superiority in terms of symptom control, both in aggregate, but also by individual symptoms. So if you look at abdominal discomfort, early satiety, pain under the ribs, night sweats, itching, muscle or bone pain, all superior. There was an improvement in quality of life. Again, quality of life assessed by the EQ5D, and you see here that superiority. Now, it is also approved in this second-line setting. The Jakarta 2 study was for individuals that had failed ruxolitinib, this is a trial that both myself and my colleague, Dr. Claire Harrison, and then we did a subsequent analysis with a stricter definition of ruxolitinib failure and intolerance. With this, we found by more modern standards what is resistant, relapse, refractory, or intolerant. We saw that about a third of individuals were able to achieve an adequate response in the second-line setting. This is important. This is a drug that I strongly feel is being underutilized for patients with myelofibrosis. Patients have an adequate set of blood counts. They have an inadequate response to ruxolitin. Please consider fedratinib. Now, fedratinib has a couple of toxicities one needs to be mindful of. It's not a limiter, but one, there can be GI side effects, so typically do give them some anti-nausea pills, some anti-diarrheal pills. Usually for most, that settles down is not a major limiter. Two, it does have a black box warning, but it's very manageable. We identified in the earlier studies that patients can have a low rate of the development of Wernicke's encephalopathy because of some impact of the agent in a handset handful of individuals on thiamine metabolism. They have a low thiamine level, replace it, and monitor thiamine. In my practice, I will share that I just tend to put everybody on thiamine. It's cheap. It's non-harmful. It takes care of the issue. Macritinib, the most recently approved of the myelofibrosis drugs, approved in February of 2022. Macritinib is a JAK2 inhibitor, a FLT3 inhibitor, inhibits IRAC1, inhibits ACVR1 as well. And what's been identified from early days is that it can help to improve spleen and symptoms, and can be given even in individuals with a marked thrombocytopenia. That it can be given at full dose, even in an individual that is platelet transfusion dependent. That is healthy. This is a clear subset and unmet need for individuals with myelofibrosis. In some of these individuals, the platelets will improve. It does not necessarily improve platelets, but it can its main benefit is it can be given at full dose and be more effective in this group of individuals. We are also seeing some evidence that it might be helpful in terms of improving anemia. Persist 2 was a trial done with patients with a plate account of less than 100,000. 
and Hero was vastly superior to helping control spleen and symptoms compared to those control arms. Now, it was shared at the most recent ASH that it's a potent inhibitor of ACVR1. This is a marker of inflammation that we think may help to contribute to anemia. Inhibiting this may help to improve anemia. It was shown in the PERSIST-2 study that there could be real clinical improvement in anemia. I presented the PERSIST-1 study at ASCO that showed similar benefits in spleen symptoms and anemia. This too can have GI side effects and overlaps with fibrinogen in that regard. There is no black box warning as it relates to procretinin. Here showing this inhibitory property against ACVR1, which is shared with mumolotinib and not shared with fibrinogen or ruxolitinib. This is one of the key reasons we feel that there is a greater likelihood of benefit for anemia for procretinin and mumolotinib versus the controls. Here, looking at the achievement of transfusion independence on those in the PERSIST-2 study, you see the different subsets, and then it was better for achieving transfusion independence overall with those with thrombocytopenia, those with JAK2, different allele burdens, and those excluding recent ruxolitinib. So really, no matter how you divided these patients up, it could be potentially beneficial. The transfusion independence can sometimes occur late in the course of treatment, here showing a differentiation against the best alternative therapy. Some did take a while. This is an agent. Give it some time and have some patience. You might see some nice benefits. Why do these things improve? Well, we've done a lot more with biology on this drug after its development. Again, inhibition of these additional pathways that are associated with the inflammasome with elevations in hepcidin. Hepcidin is felt again to be a potential contributor to anemia of chronic disease. So you decrease that inflammation. You're allowing erythropoiesis to proceed more unrestricted, better improvements in anemia. Mamelodinib is under review for an NDA application and may well be approved soon. It impacts, again, this ACVR1 that I was mentioning with impacts on spleen and symptoms as well. Functionally, we learned of this because we had seen benefits of mamelanip for improving anemia and then really did subsequent studies to try to figure out the mechanism. And it was really only in those mechanistic studies led by Stephen O and others that identified this hepcidin story. Dr. Rasavchuk and I, we co-led the phase three study of mamelodinib versus danazol in patients who were symptomatic, anemic, and had failed a JAK inhibitor. They were randomized against danazol with an open-label crossover of mamelodinib itself. And with this, we were looking at improvements in spleen symptoms, transfusions, and we saw that the trial met all of its key primary endpoints, superiority for symptoms, superiority for splenomegaly, and non-inferior anemia. At ASH of 2022, we showed that these benefits were durable. So sustained responses in week 24 in these individuals. We saw in the transfusion-independent responses that they were stable. And we looked on the panel on the right, the mean hemoglobin over time in transfusion-independent responders so continued improvement, as well as individuals that were crossed over 
from Danizol onto mamelonib had further improvements in their anemia. Here are showing benefits in terms of improvements in splenomegaly. And you see here, as we see with many of these waterfall plots, all the patients had some reduction in splenomegaly. The reduction in 35% is somewhat arbitrary. If one looks at the second line, the improvement in by 25%, that is almost all of the individuals. We have long argued that a 35% volume reduction is probably too high a bar in the second line setting. Because really, it's an individual that's already been on a jack inhibitor. They've already probably had some reduction in splenomegaly. So here you're taking them to the next level. So how do you weave these drugs together? Well, if you look at this graph that I've developed for you, we have the approved drugs and then the drugs where approval is pending. So first, proliferative frontline. Ruxolidinib clearly remains our initial standard, solid counts, normal counts, ruxolidinib. But radin can be used, and certainly if an individual has contraindications to rux, it's a logical choice. They've had skin cancers. They are susceptible to immunocompromised infections. They have issues with herpes zoster. Again, it's a good drug. Certainly can be used in this setting. But Gritinib can, but less likely to be given in this setting. Really, Ruxifredranib would be in the NCCM guidelines. In the proliferative second-line setting, Fedrandum clearly is the choice. You obviously can always consider a clinical trial, but in approved therapies, clearly fedrandum. In cytopenic myelofibrosis, picridinib is our best choice. Anemia and or thrombocytopenia and or anemia. Picridinib can be given to individuals with a normal platelet count, and it can be active, although probably less preferred than the other agents. But for cytopenias, go with picridinib. Ruxolidinib or fedrandum? Probably would try picridinib first, but again, you can always circle back to these. Mamelodinib, if and when hopefully likely to be approved, clearly would overlap in this setting to some degree. Let's say anemia, plus or minus thrombocytopenia. Mamelodinib, again, has been tested for individuals with anyone with a plate account of greater than 25,000. In accelerator or blast phase, none are great, all have some benefit. Approaches in this group probably have jack inhibitors in combination, but meaningful impact on the disease likely requires movement toward a stem cell transplant. Now, what about agents in development? There are many. And this is just a graphic just to show you the spectrum of additional mechanisms of action that are being targeted in addition to using ruxolidinib as a base. Now, people ask the logical question, well, Ruben, what about if instead we use picridinib or mamelodinib or fedrarin? All of that is a valid piece that indeed any number of these other drugs may potentially be useful in combination. But however, it is best that they at least have some data to be sure that there's no drug-drug interactions or to get some sense of whether those results are really applicable. Now, in terms of the class, we have really the cell cycle checkpoint agents in middle stat being the furthest along that is in its own phase three trial although as a single agent we have the anti-fibrosing agent from roche drm 151 we have the sl401 the cd123 toxin that's undergoing testing signaling tyrosine kinase inhibitors several of these under testing 
The JAK inhibitors we've already discussed. We have further so long the agents impacting MDM2. So you have a drug from Cartos, Natamadlin, that there was a couple favorable abstracts at EOP 2023, may impact survival in other areas. There's Idesanodlin, and there's Novidoclax impacting BCL-XL. Again, all interesting. There are the immunomodulatory drugs, interferons. Interferons have long been used in low risk MF or early MF. There are the studies from ASH in 2022 looking at pegylated interferon along with ruxolinib to try to improve spleen and symptoms. You have ROPEG, that there was a study at EHA 2023 looking at an early MF. There are the checkpoint inhibitors, although they have been relatively disappointing in myeloid neoplasia, including MF, compared to their data in solid tumors. There are the HTAC inhibitors, of which you have several there of interest, penobinostat, divinostat. You've got the bed inhibitor, halabrasib CPI 0610, that probably is the furthest along phase free testing with combination impact. So again, a very robust pipeline of combination approaches, looking at a future with many more doublets for myelofibrosis. Indeed, there are currently more phase free trials than have ever been in testing at any given point in time for myelofibrosis. You have truly those agents looking at where ruxolitinib has failed. Let's use another drug on its own. Mavalotinib, which is the momentum study I presented, as well as the telomerase inhibitor in metalstat. That drug, interestingly, has seen a survival benefit, but with less correlation to improvements in spleen and symptoms. So it can be used in and of itself, perhaps a different mechanism of action. You have the suboptimal responses to JAK inhibitors. Well, they again, we add on another agent, lespatosin, nevitacar, or explicit, and naftamalid. I think, in many ways, this approach is going to be the most patient-friendly. Give them a JAK inhibitor. They don't have a great response. Add in another drug. There are the combinations in JAK inhibitor-naive patients. These are showing deeper levels of response, but will they be better? I think the trials will be really important to see that. Halabrasin plus Rux, Davidoclax plus Rux. So MF management, key take-home points. First, the management of MS is based on the estimation of risk and starts with your decision for medical therapy versus allotransplant. Rux and Fedranib are both approved first-line medical therapies. Now, if you're using them, and you're not able to use full dose, and you have an inadequate response, we have other options. I'd say that it is not infrequent that we're seeing patients being left on these agents too long without considering alternative therapy. Next, Fedradnip, another shout out. Please consider it for second-line efficacy, and also in those with modest thrombocytopenia. Mamalonim and procritinib are both JAK inhibitors, and now procritinib is an approved agent with mamalodinib in an advanced phase three program. And there's a robust pipeline of additional agents in development for myelofibrosis. Indeed, I'm very hopeful by the potential impact of these agents in development. But let me share with you a case study. Here's an individual 72 MF, primary MF, symptoms, weight loss, etc. Big spleen, hemoglobin is nine and a half, 
white count 14, played it to 140. This individual is an intermediate to risk MF by the DIPSS, but by burden has spleen symptoms anemia. This individual in 2023 begins ruxolitinib. Now let's say this individual initially has a response. The spleen shrinks, the symptoms decrease, but they develop transfusion dependence and they get lost to follow up. They're off in another state, they live near the grandkids. But they come back to see you. Now their ruxolitinib dose has dwindled down with their local physician, advising, oh, we better cut that dose because of that anemia. The spleen back up to baseline. Symptoms, plenty of symptoms. They're needing transfusions. And the platelets are only 40. Marrow shows fibrosis. They got 6% blast. They have multiple mutations. What should we do? This individual now, by the MIPSS 70, has a high-risk disease. They have clear disease burden. Do we go to transplant? Do we go to medical therapy? Indeed, this individual, what would you do? Well, here would be some of the options. Should we prescribe fedradinib instead of ruxolitinib? Should we increase the dose of ruxolitinib to 10 twice a day? Should we add venetoclax and azacitidine? Should we prescribe pacoridinib instead of ruxolitinib? Or unsure? I'll give you the answer. I think pacoridinib would be the most preferred of these options. Platelets are under 50,000. They have spleen and symptoms. Venetoclax and azocytidine, pretty strong stuff. Probably would not use that in this setting, maybe in acute leukemia, but there are the data on venetoclax are still mixed as it relates to MF. Increasing the dose further, ruxolitinib, unlikely to be tolerated, unlikely to get incremental benefit. And fredrandum, in this setting, would be contraindicated due to the platelets of under 50,000. Now what, using this same example, let's say we kept everything the same, but the platelets were higher at 95,000. How does that impact our choices? Again, there's still high risk. What do we do? So here are our options. Prescribe fedratum in combination with ruxolitinib, add venetoclax and azacitidine, prescribe azacitinib, or switch to mamalod. So here, the preferred option clearly is mamalod. It helps improve anemia. We don't have a label yet, but would fit with this individual. Plated count well above the 25,000 tested, improve anemia, improve spleen, improve symptoms. Key takeaways. First, an accurate diagnosis, prognosis, and symptom burden assessment is needed to develop treatment plans for malofibrosis. Second, molecular diagnostic panels are very helpful in assessing MF diagnosis and prognosis. Jack inhibition either ruts or fedratinib are appropriate frontline therapies for MF. Fedratinib is approved and available as second line for ruxolitinib failures for those with minimal anemia and or thrombocytopenia. Procuritinib now approved for MF patients with thrombocytopenia for MF at either the frontline or second line, and mamalodinib is beneficial in the front and second line for MF patients with anemia and hopefully will be available soon. Thank you very much. This activity was brought to you by Access Medical Education and is supported by educational grants from GlaxoSmithKline, Insight Corporation, CTI Biopharma Corporation, and Bristol-Myers Squibb Company. To receive your free CME credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation at reachmd.com 
slash CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.